Good morning, everyone. This is David Paddock, or as a lot of the listeners to this particular podcast will probably know me, Zaythro. Welcome to the Machination Log, Introverse Chapter, I'm not sure. The memoir that follows is one that I've promised for a long time, and at this point, it is incomplete. I've been trying to do a chronology and introspection on a convention for quite a while, and it just takes more words than I can ever get out in the month after the convention while it's still fresh in my mind. But I've come up with a scheme to defeat that, and this is the first chapter of it. This particular leg is Midwest Fur Fest 2016, which is going to cover Thursday, the day before the convention, exclusively. When this goes up, I'll probably be in San Jose, where I'll be taking notes for the Friday portion, and I'll work it in from there. Basically, I'm going to turn this into a montage so that I don't rip the rest of my hair out trying to put an omnibus convention together. And I think you'll see by the end of this first episode why this is so daunting for me to do. There's just so much to talk about in one of these conventions. The preamble at the front of this is supposed to cover the entirety of the three or four days, whatever I end up covering in the end. And all of this is subject to editing and revision. It's already been revised plenty of times in the hatchet job to cut off Friday. Uh, what I had of Friday from Thursday while keeping it coherent. And I hope I did a good job. Uh, Please let me know. In any case, let's get to it. This story is a series of intimate moments housed in a community built on intimate moments. It is flawed, necessarily so. The tone is flawed because the feelings are remembered rather than felt. Writing as close in time to the event it describes as possible, referencing notes taken even closer to the point of contact, the intimacy I'm trying to capture still feels betrayed in third hand. But it's the best I can do. I'm only human, so to speak. The perspective is flawed because, as you might have heard, us furries aren't all alike. My experience is one decidedly fortunate path among thousands that furs have trod to date. I am neither average nor aggregate of who we are. Our community has good and bad people up-and-down moments, wonderful and suspect elements. In these ways, we're like any group anywhere. I don't believe I'm alone in any of what I share here, but sawing open a cross-section of being furry demonstrates in short order how many trajectories one can take through it. Furries share another odd burden in relaying these experiences, however. Any rumor you've heard, and most of what you've likely guessed about what our community gets up to, is true for at least a few individuals in it. Possibly quite a few. We raise our torch at a nexus of fantasy, impulse, romance, and a dozen other starry-eyed seven-letter words that all shine into the darker recesses of personality. These forces push people to the edge of decorum, on occasion sanity, when left unchecked, and we have some rather check-free zones around the place. As a result, talking reasonably about ourselves to outsiders while not seeming like we're hiding something is, to put it cheekily, an absolute bitch. Everyone gets some amount of gloss to smooth over the fringe in their stories just so we can all get along. A standard helping doesn't tend to suffice for furries. People question the true depth of our strangeness, and the curiosity is fair in light of what we draw and wear and do. Every sentence I write feels like I'm smothering an orgiastic gathering of deviance with feel-good jive, even to me. Because in some measure, that is exactly what I'm doing. So why should I say anything on the matter, and why should you believe my account of it? After all, I have a white-collar job and a reputation to defend. It would be perfectly reasonable for me to shroud the unsavory elements of a group I'm close to. Many furries even deny the affiliation for fear of what employers or relatives might discover. 
The best I can probably do is point to how much of our time I'm wasting wringing my hands about this up front. My account of this event, while saccharine in spots, is nowhere near universally positive. If I skirt around topics or gloss over details, it is because there are more topics and details in the timeline of a convention than I can address with even the mountain of words here, not because I'm reluctant to discuss them. When I purposely obscure things, it is to protect others who cannot give sufficient permission for me to feel comfortable relaying their experiences to you, regardless of their nature. They have co-workers and families, too, after all. If you're looking for drama, you don't need my help with that. Just type furries into the web and follow any thread that strikes you. My goal here is to give an account of what a furry convention can be like for a true believer. An account I can point to that anyone, a future member, friend, or even parent, who is skeptical of the whitewashed descriptions of us on what is a furry webpages that equate our brand of existential fulfillment to liking stuffed animals or preferring frosted flakes, will find useful. If this sounds hyperbolic, I submit the unedited title blurb from Anthrocon.org's Just What Is Furry Fandom page, which has been there since 2006. Quote, If you as an adult still occasionally like to flip through the old cartoons or have a stuffed animal sitting on the dashboard of your car or buy cereal because it has a cool tiger on the box, you may well enjoy what our fandom has to offer. Unquote. The personality and sentimentality suffusing this stuff makes my goal subjectively impossible. We are different, after all, you and I. But I will at least hint at why I burn so many vacation days every year hauling an African wild dog suit around to hotels across the continent. A final reinforcement. When I say we, or furries are, or make what seems to be an overgeneralization that is for rhetorical purposes only. I'm not a demographer, though I cite an organization that does map the demography of our community from time to time when it makes sense to use real numbers. If the overreach of the language bugs you, mentally insert a large number of us or among the furries I tend to associate with wherever this happens. I'm confident most writers would appreciate a similar degree of latitude regardless of the topic. With that stack of hedges out of the way, let's turn to the event. December 12, 2016, at 3.44 p.m. Central, the first tingle touches the back of my neck. The tingle flickers down my spine until I fidget, convulsing me upright. I'm in the back seat of a spotless, cloth-upholstered Nissan Sentra under the paid guidance of a let's-go-with-Korean hitman. Uber believes this man's name is Ren. He appears to be between 25 and 60 years old, and if there's no snub nose in his glove compartment, that's only because it's still in his jacket from earlier. I presume. He actually seems like a nice guy who just keeps to himself. The best contract killers always do. If this appraisal of my driver makes me sound like a paranoid lunatic, please enjoy the rest of the Introverse series on machinationlog.com. I'm en route to the Hyatt Regency O'Hare, host of the Midwest Fur Fest for 2016. Hereafter, against the express wishes of the governing body, abbreviated MFF. By its last day, it will become the second largest gathering of furries ever. 7,000 plus souls with the courage and means to show affinity to a genre of affection that has grown in popularity year over year. Conventions are, by any description, pilgrimages. Participants might not rise to the strictures of a religious practice, but the event has an aura. That spine tingle I just got usually hits me in the arriving airport when I identify my first fellow traveler. A tail, or an improbably themed shirt, sends out the warm fuzzies as I lay eyes on someone I've never met who knows me better by instinct than most of the folks back home. Rubbermaid manufactures a 35-gallon double-walled plastic storage container with red handles called the Action Packer, 
a box designed to measure within an inch of the requirement for checked luggage. Our community probably represents a significant fraction of that model's revenue stream, using it to shuttle fursuits across state lines. Even without accompanying apparel, seeing one of these black and gray tubs on a baggage claim carousel is a dead giveaway. The person who removes it is one of us. Sometimes a stranger will lean in and ask, are you here for the con? But that's a bold soul. The spirit of the event is among us, and most of us are too busy reveling in it to verbally confirm what we already know. We nod and smirk at each other. That's enough. We know why we're here, and it's hard not to be giddy as the aura grows from the terminal to the shuttle to the holy site itself. My 21st century taxi is providing none of these signals to me. I flew out a day early to catch up with some Chicago friends and flew into Midway rather than O'Hare, which you would only do for this con if you insist on flying southwest. I do. The only furry I've run into yet was on suspicion in the departing airport. He was standing quiet behind me in the security line at 4.40 in the morning, half asleep. I will put up with a lot to avoid a delayed flight. Even without cosmetic markers, we are usually easy to spot. Furs have a quirky body language. Certain expressions are much more common at fur gatherings than in the general population. The overreacted, excited, scared smile in particular. I don't know which direction the causal arrow points here. How much of these behavior patterns coincide with innate furriness, or push one to be furry, or are produced by the mental gymnastics of being furry. This mystery extends by degrees to why so many of us are left-handed, north of zero on the Kinsey scale, autism spectrum candidates, BDSM enthusiasts, IT workers, and wolf dog empathizers. Not neglecting all the cats, deer, birds, otters, dragons, or rabbits, of course. In fact, some of my best friends are mice. When my suspect boarded the same flight, I took that as de facto confirmation. The flare from this sighting, however, was short-lived. I'm not certain what produced the initial tingling in the car, but once it starts, it develops into a warmth that holds me for the next couple of hours. Not a physical warmth, mind you. I step out of Wren's murder wagon into a Chicago December, wearing the only jacket I, as an Orlando native, have ever owned. A gray, alpine, free country getup from a family snowboarding trip long ago. I was useless enough as a snowboarder to opt out of the ski lift the last day of this trip and instead spent a day in the room at the lodge alone where I first laid eyes on the Fur Affinity website. I've kept the jacket around even though it doesn't fit me all that well anymore as a reminder that discovery need not always be sought out. My tropical face and hands aren't keen on the 20 paces between here and the lobby of the Hilton lugging my own action packer and suitcase, but I'm in a frame of mind that makes this discomfort motivating in its own right a trivial obstacle on the final stretch. I'm staying at the Hilton down and across the street from the Hyatt with my friend Talius, who I knew by another name for many years before he and I discovered we were more like-minded than we thought. Talius is my friend's pseudonym in the community, his fursona, as it's cheekily called. I'll opt for these second names throughout the adventure because these are what we call each other on site. By the time I touch the door to the hotel, my name, for all intents and purposes, has become Zathro. There's no compelling reason to learn anyone's pedestrian name, and it's almost awkward when you catch a glimpse of a friend's ID or see them listed on a hotel itinerary as Tom or James. I don't know the quote-unquote real first name of several of my closest friends here, nor do I want to bring that facet of the quote-unquote real world into what we've constructed. This is ours. The Hilton wasn't a preference, but a necessity. We were 20 minutes late when registration for hotels opened eight months ago. Midwest FurFest staff negotiate the clusterfuck of getting attendees into rooms every year with limited success. 
Safeguards against scalping and quick draw tactics in the past key booking client appear to be non-existent, but as a process guy in my professional and casual life, I know better than to backseat drive a theater of this magnitude. There are problems and there are solutions. Woody, the current chairman of the nonprofit which runs this shebang, and his crew know about the former and are hopefully working their way through the latter. This specific convention runs so smoothly most of the time it can seem shadowy and impersonal, so this one rub can be forgiven. Elevators also get hit so hard by fur conventions, what with the room parties and overheating costumers, that walking outside for five minutes to get to our room rather than wait behind dozens of attendees for the zero to four functional elevators in the main hotel might even be preferable. I wave hi to another Orlando fur waiting in the lobby who I haven't seen in months. She has a caravan of cases around her, each with a fursuit, but for whom I'm not sure. She makes them. Fursuits have become a robust industry. If major convention attendance numbers are a guide for demand, that demand rises every year, as does the number of professionally sustained creators. The current tally, by some cursory research, is over 150 active suit makers designing and servicing a much harder to estimate number of suits. If we count the homespun ones like my own, that number is at least 10,000. My math on this figure is safe but highly improvised. Anthrocon this year set the record for largest fursuit parade at 2,100 strong. Given that not all suitors register for the parade, many suitors own more than one, and Anthrocon can't possibly be attracting more than a third of the people who own them each year, 10,000 works is a sound lower bound on the total. The most commonly cited fraction states that 15% of furries have at least one suit, with many more eagerly waiting to reach the front of their chosen maker's production line to commission them which, for many established vendors, takes about a year and $3,000. As someone who spent a year trying to make one himself, I will vouch for how reasonable that price actually is. A note for outsiders, wearing a fursuit is not what makes you a furry. Most furries want a suit, but no single act or characteristic defines us as a group. This vagueness is a constant source of camaraderie and bickering. Check in at the front desk, room 441. Huddle into an elevator designed by someone who read about stylish industrial design and interpreted this as pointing blue mood lights at blob shapes punched out of metal. All the way down to the back of the hall, flick a room card flat onto a circular card reader on the door handle. Red blink. Flip the card over and flick it again. Green blink. Carefully throw everything onto the floor inside. Elevator down to the Douglas Convention Center Skybridge Network. Down half a dozen long, straight hallways with glass walls flanked by space heaters cranked slightly too warm or too cold. Through the convention center, wondering how much more MFF is going to have to pay in rent for this place when they get too big for the hotel across the street. Inevitable at their present rate of growth. A few more long, straight hallways with glass walls. Two double doors and a short passage later, hallowed ground comes under my feet. I stand for a moment at the southeast corner, scanning the second-floor atrium of the Hyatt Regency, where cats and dogs and rabbits and dragons and foxes have come together for a weekend of mingling, snuggling, dancing, partying, and calling each other gay. Pure heterosexuals account for about a quarter of the people in the building right now, a significant portion of them hotel staff. The fur community gets a lot of mileage out of converting what would be homophobic accusation outside the fandom into communal affirmation inside it. If standard human communication like smiling came naturally to me, I would smile. Instead, I flex a set of non-existent muscles just inside my skull that gives me and no one else a sense of having come home. In a few hours, I'll return as Zathro proper and add to this aura. Serotonin floods my chest and propels me forward.
This aura is an ethereal force. I can't know what an outside observer sees or feels when passing by or through a furry convention, but even using my own indoctrinated eyes, I know it doesn't have either the monolithic sanctity of a Kaaba or the major key-charged euphoria of a Disney World. Most of the time, it looks like a large number of mischievous nerds all happen to show up in the same hotel at the same time, interspersed with mascots from sports teams you don't recognize walking by in neon pink five-point harnesses. Destination unknown. Based on many interactions with non-fur passers-by at these events, the magic is not rubbing off on them in the moment. They might ask for a hug or a picture, but their excitement is one of novelty or fleeting adoration, not the crucible of feelings that makes this so hard for me to write. I've been neurologically furry my whole life, but I both realized and publicly declared the fact in 2013. I was 23 at the time. While not unheard of, a dear friend of mine was 55 when he finally figured it out, that is much older than usual. The International Anthropomorphic Research Project, a first-centric study group based out of the University of Waterloo, pegs the average age of first self-identification at around 17. If you want the link to the IARP survey that I'm referencing here, it's all at machinationlog.com, as well as the full text of this audio file. The tendrils of the internet having pushed that number downward over the last decade. These tendrils had reached me long ago, and artwork featuring humanized animals always appealed to me, but I assumed that appeal to be universal. Disney seemed to have banked on it pretty hard for a niche market. It took a fateful trip to an unrelated convention to convert me. I followed a handful of friends to Megacon in 2013. I'd never been to a convention before then, assuming the kind of nerd a show like Megacon attracts isn't the kind I was. I was missing something a lot of my friends had found in the worlds of sci-fi, anime, what have you. A long day searching up and down merchant aisles, hallways, and meeting rooms did nothing but hammer in this assumption. We were on our way out of the main hall, heading back towards the parking lot, when I walked past a bipedal white wolf, playing in a circle with some friends, bouncing a ball up in the air, exchanging hugs. I watched this with full attention for a minute. A dam in the back of my skull buckled and collapsed. Over the next nine days, the ocean that dam had restrained flooded my memories and washed away the detritus of a decade spent contorting a misshapen image of who I am. It turns out you can be wrong about damn near everything and not even suspect it. I never made contact with this wolf, and I still don't actually know who it was, but almost nothing about the human who experienced it survived their presence that day, and I'm impossibly grateful for that. During my first visit to MFF, back when Zathro was a succession of clay molds in an apartment, I ambled about for an hour, soaking in the scene as much to figure out what I was supposed to do as to maximize the thrill of being here. Three years on, I know precisely where my first stop lies. I walk straight forward through a small crowd until I reach the big L-shaped couch in the center of the atrium. My first stop is lying down on this couch, as he was when I first met him in 2013. His name is Rex. Rex is an Illinois local, a six-foot-six, cream-point Siberian husky, a retired engineer, and as new to the community as I am. He's the 55-year-old I mentioned earlier. His first internet-based encounter with the fandom scared him off, but on a second go-around with the encouragement of his sister, his impression flipped and he dove straight in. Two blinks later, his fursona was born and sewn to life, looming over and hugging mere mortal-sized humans and dogs. 
Where most furs are younger recluses with jobs and social circles to safeguard, Rex has none of these restrictions. He's married with a kid, but that doesn't stop him from prancing about state fairs, public parks, and church gatherings, as well as hosting parties for furry passers-by most months of the year. When Rex sees me, he stands up for a four-armed, four-legged, lean-in embrace. We haven't seen each other since last MFF, so we let it linger for a while. A wave of sensory confusion hits me when I first make contact. Where I expected to be enveloped in faux fur, there is warm fleece. He's wearing a kigurumi. Basically a themed onesie. The name is a mishmash of the Japanese words for to wear and stuffed toy. He had custom made to look like his fursona. With his fursuit's head on, my eyes got lazy and inferred the remainder of the suit. My skin is more vigilant. When I ask about it, he tells me about his Wednesday, which included 14 hours of suiting. That's hard to believe, but if it's anywhere near true, it explains both his lethargy and his lack of a full coat. Most fursuit bodies are soft synthetic fiber strands woven into thick, porous fabric. Much like wool sweaters or real fur, these outfits do not dissipate heat unless intense wind blows straight into them. The full animal aesthetic demands this sacrifice and comfort, but many suitors, to stay cooler, to be more human, or just to save money, opt to wear actual clothing with furry paws and a head. These suits are called partials, in contrast to fulls. Opting for one or the other tends to be a personal preference and carries relatively little stigma compared to, say, not wearing a head. Arguments flare up regularly on the web about whether conventions should allow suitors to walk around in the main halls quote-unquote headless while still otherwise suited up. Arguments in favor of allowing it tend to read like overextended First Amendment polemics to me. Given that cons go out of their way to facilitate the wearing of fursuits with designated headless lounges stocked with fans and water, standing around outside them half-dressed strikes me as shitty and ungrateful, but at the end of the day, it's at the discretion of the organizers whether to enforce it. Most don't. And I understand either decision. Going by internet presence alone, more of you know Rex than know me. And most of what you could want to know about him is there to be found. There are die-cut stickers with Rex's dog face and full name Rex Masters printed on them floating around the community. He ordered and distributed hundreds of them, in addition to patches which he's sewn onto most of the heavy fabric I've seen him wear. Hats, fanny packs, and the like. He tweets his goings-on in his suit with the regularity of someone half his age, all while bemoaning his lack of modern tech acumen. These efforts have earned him nearly 4,000 Twitter followers in less than three years in a community where the Apex celebrities hover around 15,000. For contrast, I've been in the community the same length of time, attending at least twice as many conventions, and Zathro has 89 followers. I'll grant this is abnormally low for a fursuiter. Generally speaking, if someone just posts and retweets images of their suit on a semi-regular basis, they'll break 200 followers pretty quickly. I have a special kind of incompetence when it comes to social media, but you see the point. Rex could quite easily be unknown were he to act otherwise. After the first round of hugs, I bid Rex adieu to go scout the remainder of the facility. Down two escalators, I find the basement vendor menagerie, only about half of which will deserve the imagery that description conjures when it opens tomorrow. I discover art show registration is closed today. Double-checking MFF's website, they've opted to give the art show volunteers a break at the front and tail end of the con so they have a moment to enjoy themselves. This is more than fair. MFF, like most fur conventions, is a fully volunteer operation. The perks of this extend beyond lower ticket prices and a lack of corporate advertising. 
I have attended a handful more non-fur conventions since getting my suit and heard plenty of anecdotes attesting to the pay-for-play toxicity infecting a lot of these gatherings. Furcons have infighting and bureaucratic gridlock like any organized event, but these problems rarely jeopardize the vibe the way they do when personal compensation is on the line. I can't speak for the vendors on this point as I've never been one, but stories from friends who sell on the circuit outside the fur community suggest there's little chance it's worse here. In any case, for a labor of love, the team behind MFF does a bang-up job and more than earns some pre-showtime off. Back up the escalators and around the elevator column, walking past dozens of people with ears and tails staring at phones waiting for registration to open, dodging foxes and Nikons on my way up to get food. Dinner for one in the Hyatt's partially walled restaurant buffet, listening through the rest of Jocko Willing's podcast for this week and watching the masses stroll by. My ears take in the graveled vigor of a retired Navy SEAL commander tunneling his way through a Korean war memoir to visualize the psyche of an American rifle platoon as it is systematically dismantled by mortar fire and howling winds. My eyes take in the silhouettes of meandering congoers and bipedal fuzzy animals with cartoon heads petting each other. Reconciling these inputs is a non-starter. The dissonance triggers a giggling fit stitched into waves of choked-up empathy for soldiers who can't have imagined what they were fighting for. My tongue is receiving a buffet's worth of flavors, none of which have much to add to the conversation. I head down to registration, assuming the line will have moved. It has not. I'd rather not come back again, so I opt to take the laminated end-of-the-line card from a slight bearded man in a cap who was a pirate in another life, if he isn't in this one. The sign is soon rested away by an almost impressively short woman, sporting pink ears, a tail, and half claws. I've never felt comfortable wearing fur paraphernalia. I'm either full-on David or full-on Zathro. Or full-on Toriel, if I bring her along. A solid explanation to this attitude has never presented itself, but it probably ties into my wariness of other accessories, including watches, tattoos, and words on shirts. Because I feel a social obligation to stand in a line rather than sit, I'm left with only my immediate surroundings and my phone to entertain me for the next half hour, which I believe qualifies as torture under the Geneva Convention. Unfortunately, American attitudes toward foreign treaties being what they are, I stand in a parade rest stance for 30 minutes listening to what people around me are saying as we push forward in gelatin ripples. Here are some excerpts. Quote, My mom's like, I want to have grandkids. I'm like, that's not how it works, mom. Unquote. Unpacking this sentiment and its variants across the community is worthy of a book unto itself. Quote, Poplio, unquote. Three separate instances. Quote, yeah, I'll meet you over by the dildo tower, unquote. A quick glance around the room suggests this landmark is located elsewhere. I'll keep an eye out. Quote, I can't believe how many people come up to me like, can I hang out with you? And I'm like, yeah, no thanks. Can you stay away from me? Nervous laugh, unquote. Quote, don't worry, he's cool. He, like, he does cool parties, but he isn't like some stuck-up elitist or anything. Unquote. The last two quotes came out of the same person's mouth across a span of no more than three minutes. Quote, I love your badge. Unquote. Beyond the badges, the con distributes first have badges with full-color depictions of their characters in all conceivable shapes and sizes. Badges serve a dual purpose as a visually descriptive Hi, my name is sticker and an excuse to commission drawings of your fursona, the market for which is myriad and vibrant. I don't tend to like the way artists depict Zathro, and I've still managed to collect four badges of him. Quote, 
last name, unquote. My attention snaps to the attendant in front of me. I hand him my driver's license instead of responding initially. Scan the sheet in front of him, spot my name and touch my finger to it before he's done checking my ID, sign two documents with the regard everyone shows to legal forms, acquire con badge, con book, and event schedule, head back down the skybridge hallways to my room. Stopwatch clocks the trek from the Hyatt lobby to room 441 in the Hilton at almost precisely 10 minutes. I heave the action packer from the window to the side of the bed, carefully peel off a line of duct tape, unsnap the red handles, and remove the top. Zaythra's fleece nose pokes out from a hill of fur wrapped around his head. I unwrap the arms, revealing the rest of his face. Most furs have a permanent cheerfulness carved into their mugs. An open-mouthed smile, eyes with anime highlights, high-set cheeks. Zaythro has golden-yellow owl eyes and a dead neutral lip line. Three people have described his gaze publicly as staring into my soul. He's not scary, unless you've got something to hide. And his stare promises he'll find it. Until he opens his mouth, then he just looks silly. It took my friend Dylan and I almost a year to get his face right, but I think we did the mission justice. He's as much of who I want to be on the inside as can be brought outside. I fear the day he needs to be replaced. Judging by his missing teeth, torn seams, and the increasing spottiness of all his mechanical parts, that day might not be far off. He was built to be a prototype. He's two years old now, only a year and a half younger than me. I lay his head on the bed, then his body, hands, feet, and collar. A big pink one he wears both to break up the body pattern and to disguise the horrendous job I did designing his neck transition. I shove my way into a skin-tight Under Armour rash guard to shield me from Zathro's coarse underside and shield Zathro from my sweat. It always feels too fast, becoming him. His body doesn't count. That's just a suit of soft armor I zip up in the back. Same with his feet. These slip on and feel like big-toed shoes. Next, however, is his head. Even now, so many times since the first, I still look around to see if I'm missing something. Once the mask is on, he becomes real, and I'm not ready for that. Calming myself enough to accept this takes a few minutes, sometimes quite a few. I am not Zathro, not in total. Reams of inward thoughts, obsessions, privations infect me that must be defeated before I can become him. The minutes spent rebuking the regions of my mind he will not accept are the most stressful of the convention, and overcoming the barrier of personality is no guarantee. You are free to imagine what this feels like when I fail to do this. Thankfully, I won't fail tonight. I stare into his eyes from the outside one more time, flip him around, part the fur flaps of the back of his neck, and bring this machination back to consciousness. Zathra's world is quieter than mine. I don't hear as much and have to shout to be heard. I'm more aware of his breathing than my own, and not just because his is more laborious. Sight through his black buckram pupils is more spatial than precise. He filters all communication, incoming and outgoing. Once my skin hands are enclosed in blue and white, the conversion is total. I waggle my fingers in front of his eyes, but they're not my fingers. David is no longer here. In cosplay, the performer becomes a source of their own affection. 
To put on Harley Quinn's makeup or hold Cloud's oversized sword is to play a part in extending the mythos of these characters. This is a viscerally empowering thing to do, triggering the same neuron paths that fill sports stadiums with screaming fans. Within the tolerance of your own imagination, who you are does not limit who you represent under charade, and exploiting this disconnect is a basic freedom. In its starkest form, costumes allow humans who shy away from their own passions to not just expose, but physically embody them. Fursuiting does this, but rather than paying homage to a beloved external fiction, it is its wearer's own creation, usually an alter ego, or ideal, or muse. I've talked to many people who are skeptical of a real difference between fursuiting in particular and cosplaying in general, who believe the distinction is either oversold or non-existent. I see their point in principle. Cosplayers who dress up and act like a character want to be that character to the greatest possible extent for the duration, whether the character is quote-unquote theirs or not. Fair enough, but leaving to one side for a moment those who are dressing up either to fit in or show off, as many furs do, to be clear. What yardstick does a furry have for knowing whether they've completed this transformation successfully, even at a superficial level? I take this question seriously, and I know many other furs do as well. It seems impossible that most cosplayers would respond with the same level of despair to losing their outfits as furries would to losing their suits, and our world-class neuroticism as a subculture is not entirely to blame for that. In fact, I submit the possibility that we are as anxious as we are precisely because we have such a dire need to align our reality with our fantasy. Fursuiters are some of the least anxious members of the community, which makes sense under that hypothesis. The suit is the closest we can presently get to satisfying that need. Fursuits are exhausting to wear for extended periods, but I take off Zaythra just as often to avoid failing to be him as I do to prevent heat stroke. Being Zaythro has shaped big, meaningful chunks of my life, and parts of me are woven into him that will be lost when I make my next suit no matter how similar the new dog is to the old dog. I'm not suggesting this feeling is unique to furries. There are certainly people who approach their non-animal costumes with this kind of existentialism in the balance, but you see it all over at a furry convention. Fursuits aren't a fantasy entertained so much as a destiny fulfilled. For the ones like me, anyway. Down the elevator. Extending my arms and legs, testing my range of motion, adjusting my collar, traipsing down the hallways of the sky bridge, catching askance glances and the occasional high five. Back out to the Hyatt lobby. I plop down next to Rex. He's being flanked by a kid who looks to be in his early 20s, half Hispanic, wearing a black sweater with white text. As with most everyone I don't talk to at least eight times, his name escapes me. And, as with everyone else, if I actually made an honest effort to do it, I'd probably succeed. That said, this deficiency has cost me associations with several furs I enjoyed talking to, so if my memory is selective, the criteria isn't quite that obviously self-serving. He clings to Rex with a faint desperation. Head leaned against Rex's arm, petting his leg with some pressure. He only speaks when he needs to confirm that everything is okay, that this is good, that we can be friends. If he catches the slightest hint this might not be true, he will bow his head and escape the situation in expedient silence. My people. I don't know if I can properly estimate how many of the furs here fit into this category of brokenness, this desire for attachment to anyone even vaguely receptive to it. 
I consider myself a high-functioning member of this pool, someone who can maintain his composure well enough to fool those around him rather than lunge at every warm body within lunging distance. This is a constant mental strain, but it pays dividends by not freaking out or bothering everyone unacquainted with me. Others aren't so lucky. Their disposition suggests they've been hemorrhaging sanity in the wake of every missed or rejected opportunity for connection their whole lives. I make a conscious effort to seek these souls out as often as I can, imposing strength upon myself long enough to bring them in. Some may have genuinely lost their humanity to this neurosis. Most have not. Most are waiting to believe they are not alone. If the condition outlined above sounds like a paralytic nightmare, let me introduce its panacea and ultimate strength. Most of you are familiar with hugging in principle a culturally informed symbol of family or camaraderie, sometimes heartfelt but usually just the start or end of a cordial encounter. At this point, you're expecting me to tell you it means more than that, but that doesn't do justice to the contrast. The forces at play are larger, inside and out, and I need to distinguish the Swiss Army knife term for wrapping your arms around someone from the specific, full-power, bipartisan interaction I'll be talking about here. Lacking a definitive choice, I'm going to call it an embrace. Let's begin with what a perfect gesture an embrace is. Asking for an embrace requires you to open your arms and it cannot commence until the other party responds in kind. You both expose, head to toe, nearly every vulnerable point on your body. This is trust, symbolic and genuine. You then close the gap, head to toe, enveloping each other. Now combined in a cage of limbs, these weaknesses are no longer exposed to anyone but your partner, and your strength has no purpose but to accept the other's weakness. A shield, physical, psychical, grows in proportion to your willingness to harbor their weakness and let them harbor your own. This commitment is impossible to fake. Telling the difference between an open or closed embrace takes place on contact, you can feel the darkness it exposes when both parties are open. When an open embrace dissolves naturally, it is because this darkness has become light. The two parties can go in peace, made radiant by the charity and mercy of another soul. It probably sounds like I'm overselling the feeling. Let me reiterate my opinion of this act with some words I couldn't shove into the description. Apotheosis. Transcendental. Life-affirming. Preferable to sex worth spending thousands of dollars and all my vacation days every year to fly around the U.S. doing this in a dog costume. All this for the low, low price of an urge to be inappropriately intimate with nearly everyone I see. I spend a lot of time at conventions figuring out how to push standard hugs into their stronger form. When people make a point to mention that I'm a good hugger, I attribute that to this mission. I don't come close to batting a thousand, and that failure isn't always the other party's fault but I do my best to be there every time. Press to come up with a list of life-flashing-before-my-eyes moments, at least four hugs are locked for the top ten. Two of those occurred within 20 feet of where I'm sitting now. You might assume now that Zathro is just a way to lure strangers in so I can act on my neurosis. Or you might remain blindsided by the sex comparison. At a cynical level, of course, being a big, fluffy dog makes it easier to get hugs out of people. That's not the whole picture, though. People with Asperger's syndrome tend to be overly sensitive to the world around them. When I'm snuggling with someone, vertically or horizontally, 
I am subjected to a sensory overload that makes it harder for me to be fully present. This isn't just a sight and sound phenomenon. It applies to touch as well. Skin contact is pleasant in and of itself. This includes, but isn't specific, to sex. And I'll seek it out on purpose if that sensation is what I'm after, but it tends to just add static to other experiences. My version of events differs from other Aspergerians, I'm sure, but this sensory static is either so strong or so unpleasant, a lot of them can't physically tolerate being hugged. For me, it's an immersion thing, an adrenal event that requires commitment to enjoy. Sather's fur dials this back far enough for me to think straight. Rather than a stimulant, he's a wearable relaxant. I also, not to lose the obvious, find him extremely attractive and enjoy the mental imagery associated with being him. He's a multi-purpose dog. This excludes, quite specifically, sex. I let go of Rex and start my stalk. In many ways, it's an act. Walking around with six pounds of synthetic fur smothering you requires some calibration. The strut, the pantomime, the gestures. I don't read or make faces with any natural facility, owing to the syndrome previously described. Fursuits level this playing field by freezing the face in one frame. Maybe two and a half if you've got a moving jaw. Forcing all visual cues to manifest from the body. Many furs also opt, as I usually do, not to talk while in suit, but instead rely on nonverbal sounds or even silence. Dipping your neck while flicking your arm and inflecting downward from the back of your throat to say, of course, demands far more attention to detail than just saying it, but the orchestra also means much more than the words alone imply. Complex thoughts and emotions suddenly aren't coming out as a pre-chewed reflex, and the contemplation of how to evoke them anchors me to the present moment as I act with those around me. These evocations are fonts for joy and art in as raw a form as they come. I'm once again feeling a touch hyperbolic saying that, so I'll give an example of each from this first excursion. As I round the base of the elevator, a Chinese girl with cat ears pounces from a bench into the hallway, demanding confrontation. She can't be older than ten. I place my hands on my hips and crook my neck to the side in curiosity. She steps forward, places her hands on her hips, and crooks her neck back at me in defiance. So that's how it's going to be. I bounce back, hands splayed in front of my face in mock surprise. She bounces back and splays her hands, waiting for the next instruction. Cats seem to like the mimic game a lot. Zaythra was a dog by species, but as an extension of every other form of androgyny informing my life, he feels cat-like a lot of the time. In staggered synchrony with a gathering crowd, we dance around each other, march down the aisle, and play a game of slap hands I couldn't have won if I tried. And I really, really tried after the first two rounds. Her mom, who has been vigilantly observing this charade at close range for the past two or three minutes, calls out to her. The girl looks back for a second with a pout, then turns back to me and throws her arms out. Already on my knees from slap hands, I lean forward and wrap my arms around her. She means this hug the way happy children do, which is cheery and accepting, but a little perfunctory. Not her fault. She flaps goodbye and bounces back to her mother, lifted by a simple, kinesthetic friendship. That's joy. I turn around from this and walk not five steps before stopping again. In the dim foyer by the front entrance, a black-and-white striped silhouette out of a sinister Dr. Seuss book is moving like time has slowed down. The down-tempo flow of this creature's motions are as stark and eccentric 
as its square curled tail. I always think carefully about how to approach Shawshank. This suit is modeled to look like a crux, one of the whole cloth contributions furries have made to the animal kingdom. In addition to the Sergal, the Chack Hat, and the Dutch Angel Dragon. I step nearer at an oblique angle, just out of what I assume to be his cone of vision, and rotate my torso toward him. Shawshank turns his head right and raises his hand to waggle his fingers hello. I close the distance with another step and engage, matching the pace and sway. We close for an initiating hug, which he delivers like a vice grip, cranking down until there's no more to give. The embrace evolves into petting, gazing, caressing, oscillating, all with an obsessed commitment to maintaining a spell of infatuation. Shawshank and I don't know each other personally, a fact that occurs to neither of us as we trade comically exaggerated sensual affections in this bubble of slow motion for an amount of time I can barely guess. Observed casually from the side, this water dance looks melodramatic, bordering on hokey, but caught in the wave, this is what beautiful feels like. My mood from before we made contact is untraceably gone, expunged by a stifling warmth. This whole paragraph has been a slog to type because the memory of these encounters is so immediate it's making me convulse. My reasons for being here are clarified, and as we retreat, I now walk with a confidence of purpose. Is it possible that I'm misinterpreting Shawshank's mannerisms, reading a world of meaning into these transient exchanges? Absolutely. That's art. A few more variants on these two prime cases before the length of the day catches up with me. I amble back up to Rex's couch and plop down next to him, effectively starting a fur pile with two members. Fur piles are spontaneous astronomical events, a gravity well that sucks in passing furries. The smaller piles tend to be unstable and dissipate soon after formation, but if a critical mass is reached, the density of these piles begins to crush the members near the center, fusing them together in an uncomfortable but nonetheless pleasant configuration. After what can feel like a billion years sometimes, depending on your position within it, the fur pile will collapse under its own fuzziness and go supernova, radiating supercharged fur particles in all directions. There is theoretical evidence for a fur black hole, a snuggling body so dense not even normal people can escape its pull. However, no confirmed demonstrations of this phenomenon are documented. The first body to be pulled into our orbit is 12, a monochrome lion out of Orlando with a number for a name. He's an enormous black dude, one of the few people on site who's taller than me, who would be terrifying to have looming over you right up until he sits down and rests his head on your leg with a big contented smile on his face. I suppose that might be differently terrifying for some. This fear would also be assuaged by the way he almost certainly danced his way up to you. I pet him for a few minutes. Being pet is a direct stimulation, reacting to the motion and empathy of the hand. Petting is an indirect stimulation, aligning to the motion and empathy of the body. A little two-point feedback loop. Both positions are cathartic, but one can't have it both ways. Not emotionally, at least. Even if two dogs lay paws on each other at once, it manifests either as a rapid alternation of dominance and submission, or as a separate feeling altogether, a variant of a hug. I would dive deeper into the domination-submission dynamics here if I had another month to write this memoir. I think about this, while Twelve lies in absolute peace beside me. At a head count of three, the average height in this pile remains six foot five. 
Tall people seem to befriend tall people. The kid from earlier comes back, rejoining Rex's side. Another, and another, and another. Soon we've got a quorum of warm bodies nestled together, half suit, half skin, enough to mobilize the lot for an hour or so. I know the two furs already introduced by name, and no one else. This is fine. We're here for some communal snuggling in a more or less public place. Quite a few kind souls outside this building gave of themselves to sanction what we do here. The least we can do is honor those efforts by spreading this affection to any soul brave enough to accept it. Rex breaks the stasis to ask if I'd like to go up to his room for mimosas. Adding alcohol to the equation this early on seems foolish, but the quiet of the room sounds like a good idea. We decouple from the pile, head up some stairs, and out of the din. Rex removes his head, something he's loathe to do downstairs, even in the lounges designed for the purpose. The vanity of someone showing his age, I assume, though it very well could be he'd rather not have to deal with recognition and swarming when out of suit. A lot of fursuiters publicly disguise the connection between their human and animal forms. Having the option to turn off and be a pedestrian has an appeal many celebrities in larger circles have bemoaned losing. Rex the dog doesn't make it far down any corridor without getting called on for a picture or wave, which is exhausting just to watch. The door closed behind us. His posture suggests he has let go of attention, is a touch more at ease. We grab water bottles from a cooler on the deck outside his room and sit on the bed. He does most of the talking. I like to hope that's because I've become better attuned to when someone wants to hear what I have to say, but it could also be that my time with Rex is fully contemplative. He's twice my age, has a wife and a kid, has lived a life I'd be happy to live from what I've heard of it, has a completely different insight into the community we share despite a very similar timeline, cares about everyone, within and without these walls. Plenty of key people in my life are substantially older than me, and I treat everyone like they're 25. But there's something precious in Rex's story that I don't want to interrupt. If I don't devote a few synaptic cycles to the way I'm coming across during this contemplation, my listening looks like a responseless trance that he, understandably, reads as boredom or disinterest in whatever facet of his life he's expounding on. He'll say, anyway, and look off sheepishly to let me know when I'm not doing a good enough job. These failures kill me, because this moment we're sharing alone now is an echo of a momentary victory over my haywire emoting system that began our friendship almost to the hour two years ago, when I had been listening to him for the first time and convinced him I wouldn't run away screaming if he revealed who he quote-unquote really was to me. Before we leave, I meet Rex's two roommates, Elikami and Boom Puma. Boom is an Australian lion whose hair reminds me of Elvis, which says more about my visual memory of Elvis than anything else. He has a standoffish attitude when it comes to American goods and services, which would sound pretentious, but he complains about the coffee downstairs with a miffed Australian accent, so instead it sounds hilarious and endearing. This comment would also probably piss him off, which would just trigger another cycle of hilarity and endearment. Elikami is a blue and gray wolf from New Zealand who's sporting a neon green-lined firefighter outfit. He reminds me of Ratchet from the video game, who was my first crush back in high school. I really should have picked up on all this earlier. He's a fan of latex. That doesn't sound terribly furry at first, but once you consider the volume of touching going on, it actually fits the fandom like, well, you know. I give everyone a parting hug and head back to my room to get a good night's sleep. It is Thursday, after all. 
the con hasn't technically started yet. 